We certainly appreciate the presence of each one here this morning. We're thankful that you've seen fit to be out at the Lord's house, and we welcome you all to this assembly. I'm very happy once again to be able to be here, and I appreciate another opportunity to be your speaker. Uh, this morning, I'd like to take our time and talk about the subject I've written up here on the board. Uh, did you know that everything which we do in the Christian life is by faith? It's by faith, that's the way that we do it. And I'd like to talk about this subject. And uh, if, I, if I were to ask you, uh, if you wanted to talk about faith, uh, where would you go in the New Testament to talk about it? Uh, which verse would you choose uh, in order to establish the fact of what you want to know about? Uh, would you be willing to say, you know, I, I'll base my lesson on this particular chapter? Well, I got to thinking about that. It's obvious to me. There's a chapter in the New Testament that every Christian ought to be familiar with here. It's the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is a book of faith. It talks about what faith is, which I'm going to do just in a minute. And then it goes down through a long list of what I call God's heroes of faith. Uh, it is something which is a great uh, chapter, and it's one that I want to look for the source of our study this morning. In Hebrews 11, and let me start off at verse 6 and establish the fact of how important this is. The Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Did you hear that? He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's how important this is. That's why we're going to take our time and talk about it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now the question arises, well, where do we get our faith? Do you go to bed some night unfaithful and wake up the next morning faithful? Well, I know that's not the way this happens. The Bible allows us to understand in Romans 10 and verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now I'll write that down because I'm going to point to it every now and then. And I'll get it up here in front of you. Where does faith come from? Uh, faith, he says, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we find out that our faith comes by hearing of the word of God. Uh, hearing, and I'll write that over here on this side and get a little ways out here. Hearing does not necessarily mean it has to come through your ears. Whatever you study or read the Lord's word, you are hearing from him. So we get our faith from a hearing, and this is a big important part. A hearing of the word of God. That's pretty simple, isn't it, really? Where do we get our faith? We get it by hearing of the Word of God. And you know what that allows me to understand? Faith is not something that you can't define. Faith is not some ephemeral something blowing around here in the ether world that we can't get our hands on. Faith is something that the Bible describes right there we're reading in the first chapter. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. You know what substance is? Look here. See this pulpit? This pulpit is substance. It has a reality. It is something which is real that you and I can understand. So is faith. Faith is, has a reality also. And it is something which we can understand. Notice what else he says there. He said it is the evidence of things not seen. Now I don't know if you're a fan of law and order. I kind of like law and order. And you know what? The district attorney will not bring charges against anybody until first of all he has some evidence. 
evidence you could say is proof. Uh, it's a wonderful thing as far as I'm concerned to think that the faith you get out of the Bible is proof. It's evidence. It's something that you can take to the judge. Uh, it is something that you can be for sure is right in the sight of God. So the faith that we get out of the hearing of the word of God is something which is substance and it's evidence. Now the next thing I begin to think about is I want an example of faith by faith. Uh, and I'll use Hebrews 11. So I begin to go down through there. And you'll notice it talks about Abel. Abel um, uh, uh, made a better or more excellent sacrifice than Cain. No, no, no. Enoch, how about Enoch? No, 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 I don't want to talk about Enoch. How about Noah? Oh, that's a good story. Noah by faith saved himself by building an ark. No, I don't want to talk about that either. I went right on down through there, Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rehab, uh, Rahab, and we talked about her one night. Now I skipped the one I want to use. The one I want to use is Abraham and Sarah. Here's two examples of people who did things by faith. And I just want to rehearse this quickly for you. You can read this in Genesis chapter 22 and Genesis chapter 21. And here's the story, as most of you probably know. Abraham was given a promise by God that he would give him a son, a son between him and Sarah. And that didn't happen. Time went on and years passed and Abraham never got his son. Uh, Sarah was barren. She never had a child at all. And things went on. And finally one day God spoke down to Abraham. And I love the way Abraham deals with God. God said, Abraham. And he said, here my Lord. Whatever it is, I'm ready for it. God said, you're going to have a son. How about that? You know, Abraham's 100 years old there. The Bible talks about him in Genesis 21 at verse 3. He's 100 years old. He's what would generally be considered past the age of having a son. You're going to have a son, God reminded him. And then he told Sarah. And Sarah, who's 90 years old and past the time of having a baby, she's thrilled with the idea. She laughs about it and it's not ridicule like I've heard people some say it is a, a laugh of joy. They're so happy now this promise that God has uh, given them is going to happen. Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. Alright the time came and they had a son. A son of promise. Uh, they had a son that they'd looked for all these many years, and now then they have a son. And we find out that this son is something that must have been the joy of their heart, the idea that they've got a son after all of these years. Uh, can you imagine mama and daddy or, or grandma or grandpa uh, having the opportunity to have a son that your children have wished for, or you have wished for, for years and years and years, and that happens. Uh, they named the son Isaac. And we find out that little Isaac is the joy of their heart. One day, though, God spoke to uh, Abraham again. And he said, um, take your son out to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice unto me. That's awful, isn't it? What do we want you to do with this son of promise? God says, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice this is difficult enough for me that I want to read it to you. Genesis 22, verse 7. Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. 
So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar of wood. Can you think about that? Abraham takes his little boy, and I don't know, I say little boy, I don't know how old Isaac was, I tried to find it out. Uh, apparently he is um, maybe a young uh, adult or maybe a teenager, that's what I would guess. And they're going out to Mount Moriah. Now there's some more people with him, uh, but they're going along and you know Isaac's kind of got a clue. He said to his daddy, you know we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the offering? And Abraham said, God will provide. He tied his little son up. He put him on, all, on the wood. He is ready. And the Bible says in verse 10, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What is he going to do? Abraham is going to slay his son of promise. He's going to kill Isaac. Do you think he would kill Isaac? Well, I'll give you the answer to that. Yes, he will. He's going to kill Isaac. The son he's looked for for all of his life. The son that he and, and Sarah have rejoiced over. He's going to kill his son. But I find something happens. By faith, we find there occurs. Uh, uh, an angel uh, arrives on this scene uh, in, verse, or in uh, Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, uh, neither thou do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Before Abraham could stick that knife at his son, an angel steps up and stops this. Don't hurt the boy, he said. God sees that you, uh, you have faith in Him, that you're going to obey Him. Now here's a conclusion to this, and I'm going to have conclusions like this as we go along. Uh, why did Abraham, dis uh, why was he willing to kill his son? Because God told him to. That's why. Uh, he had faith. Uh, God says, I see that you believe in me. This was a test, if you'd like to look at it like that. He has faith. He's going to kill Isaac. Except God stayed His hand. Now this is something again, and this is why this is so important. It is more important to obey the will of God than to let Isaac live. Not pretty heavy duty, isn't it? More important to obey the will of God than to let Isaac live. And we find that's exactly what uh, Abraham was willing to do. Hebrews 11 verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, that's what this is, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. He's tried. This is a test, if you'd like to look at it like that, and he is willing to offer up his only begotten son. Let me read a little bit more in the New Testament. James 2, verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But without, but wilt thou, O uh, but with thy no vain man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See, seest thou how faith wrought with works, and by works was faith made perfect? 
What does he say about Abraham? He showed his faith by his works. He is going to do just exactly what God said. And look how he was rewarded. The Bible goes on in uh, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. How do you like that? I like the idea that a human being could be called the friend of God. And that's what Abraham was. Now suppose Abraham would have said, no, no, I'm going to have mercy on my only begotten son. But I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to let him live. Would he have been called the friend of God? No, he wouldn't. Would you like to be called the friend of God? I'm happy to tell you, you can. Uh, Jesus tells us this. Uh, he explains this idea to us uh, when he tells us that we also can be a friend of God. In John 15, verse 14, Jesus said, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I tell you. How do you get to be a friend of God? You do what he tells you. That's the way that this works. Now, if Abraham would not have carried this out, he would not have been the friend of God. I find that this is something which is necessary. The last verse in this reading at verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Abraham was justified by works and faith. He did what God told him to do. Now, I have a modern application <clears throat> that I'm going to use here, and we're going to talk about something more up-to-date for us. Uh, I want to tell you, first of all, a couple of scriptures, and we're going to come back to them once in a while. These are the ones that I quote or I read quite often. Mark 16, verse 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. 1 Peter 3 verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but to answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now with those two verses in mind, what do we got? We've got God's word. What does he say? We have to be baptized to be saved. He goes on to say that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. You have that. About three years ago, I had the opportunity to study with a man and his wife. Darlene, went over, Darlene and I went over to their house every night for, uh, not every, every week, for a couple of months. And we studied with them, trying to cause them to see the need to obey the gospel. That's what we were doing. But it was obvious we weren't having very much luck. And one night we'd been studying now for quite a while, and I met myself coming back. I don't know if you've done home studies. If you have, you reach a point like that sometimes. Here it is again. We're over and over and over again, and here it is, and uh, nothing's going any further. So I told the man and his wife, you know, we're not making any progress here. Our obstacle was baptism. They did not believe that you needed to be baptized. I said, we've been over and over and over this, and this is the last time that I'm going to do this with you because it has no payoff. Uh, the end is not recognized. So we didn't study with them anymore. We went our way, and they went theirs. Months later, maybe a, almost a year later, at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, the telephone went off beside my ear. I reached over and got the telephone. Now you know a two o'clock phone call, two o'clock in the morning phone call is not a happy thing most of the time. 
And I stuck the phone up to my ear, and there was a lady on the other end whom I knew, and she worked at our local hospital. She said, Joe, there's a man out here that is just out of his mind to see you. Uh, you need to get out here as soon as you can. He just calls it a ruckus. He wants you to come out. Well, I jumped up, got dressed, made a mad dash to the hospital. And uh, when, I, when I got there and I went in, I found out he was in intensive care. Do you all know why they call it intensive care? Because it's intensive care. They're struggling to keep this man alive. He's had a horrendous heart attack. He's a, not an old man. And when a young man has a heart attack, it's a bad deal. His heart's torn apart. They're trying to keep him alive. I got in there and I intensive care. Uh, you know, you go into intensive care if you've ever spent any time there, especially two o'clock in the morning. It's kind of an eerie place. There's all kinds of noises going on. There's ticks and tones and warning sounds and flashing lights and everybody there is in intensive care for the purpose. I found out that the one who was in intensive care that I wanted to see and wanted to see me was the man we'd studied with for uh, weeks. It was him. He'd had the heart attack and he was laying there on the bed and they had his hands tied down. They had tubes down his throat. They had tubes in his nose. They had all kinds of, of needles sticking in his arms and sitting on his chest was a pacemaker. And I looked around and I thought, there was two or three nurses there and they were worn out. They'd put in their time that night. There was a couple of doctors there, and I looked at them, and I thought, you know, they're weary. They're tired. They'd spent the night struggling with the benefit of medicine and machines to keep death off of the door. I went over to the man's bed, and he was so excited he wanted to talk. He couldn't talk. Had a big tube down his throat. He's trying to talk to me, and I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do next. But thank the good Lord, there's a nurse there who did have herself under control. She walked over with a, a pad of paper and stuck it under this man's hand and put a pen in his fingers. And that man reached over on that paper, and he wrote. You know what he wrote? B A. P. He wrote B-A-P. Now that's the abbreviation we use for baptism. What does he want? He wants to be baptized. Here he is tied down in the situation he's now in and he remembers Mark 16, 16 and 1 Peter 3, 21. He remembers all of those other things that he heard from the word of God and now then that's really important to him. It wasn't important to him just a few weeks ago. Now then, he wants to be baptized. Well, I told him, I said, we'll get it done. And I'll tell y'all for your benefit, if you ever get in a situation like that and if somebody wants to be baptized and you want to baptize them, you can do it. I don't care what they tell you at the hospital. You can get it done. This man's doctor was there. I knew him too. I went over to him and I said, we want to baptize him. He said, if you do, it'll kill him. He'll die. Now, don't misunderstand this, but I'm going to say something really plain right here. I said, I don't care if he does. 
And I said, he doesn't care if he does. We've got to do this. And the doctor said, you'll have to sign a, re a release for me. You'll have to sign one for the hospital. I said, whatever, get it going. This is something which is urgent. So we did. I signed a release for the hospital. I signed a release for the doctor. And I could understand that. They didn't want any liability here for what we were about to do because it could kill him. We got him ready to go. You know what I need now? I need some help. That's what I need. Everybody's cleared out. They don't want to be associated with this either. There's one little nurse there, bless her heart. She'd come around and she said, I'll help you. I said, well, let's go. So we took the needles out of his arms. We took the tubes out of his throat. We got the tubes out of his nose. The doctor come charging in. He said, you can't put that pacemaker under the water. I said, if you want your pacemaker, you better get it because that's where we're going. He got the pacemaker off and we took him down in the basement of the hospital. In the basement, there was a great big whirlpool and there was a crane sticking out over the whirlpool uh, that we could pick him up with, which we locked it onto his bed and we swung him out over the water, let him down in the water up to about here. And then I said the things I like to say when I baptize and I stuck his head under the water. When he come up, he was so thrilled, it's unspeakable. We got him back upstairs, and my little nurse helper, we got him back hooked up, and he was right where he was when we got him. Uh, he had made it. And I look at it like this. That night, Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit beat the devil. And my new brother, I must mention him, they beat the devil that night. Uh, here's the opportunity which he's now taken care of to obey the gospel. I'm thrilled. He's thrilled. Everybody's thrilled. He died three days later. But what a difference. Here was an alien sinner who had no hope, and now he dies in the arms of Jesus, as we sometimes say. Here's one who had neglected obeying the gospel for all this period of time. And now then, he's the son of God's. That's a big change, isn't it? You know what that man realized? And this is terribly important. He realized it was more important for him to do what God said than to live. That's what he realized. And he recognized, in spite of the fact that he'd not had much exposure, that to obey God was a soul issue, not a health issue. And that's what he wanted to do. You know, those things, uh, that doesn't happen very often. But I've known of other cases like that. And what has happened there? The person decides that his faith, which came from a hearing of the Word of God, was more important than living. Now then, I want to carry this a little bit further. And I want to make a, another application out of this. In recent times, in the last two or three years, uh, we've had some very sad things happen in this old world. And the, the, really the bad part of it is we've had some sad things happen in the Lord's church. I'm going to read you two verses just like we did for the man here. And I want you to remember these. Hebrews 10 at verse 25, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
What did he say? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Again, Acts 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech in the midnight. We have a command, don't forsake the assembly. We have an example. They assembled together upon the first day of the week. And you know, this is something, again, that um, strange things have happened. Strange things have occurred, and I find this is something that we want to talk about just a little bit. When we pray, isn't it ordinary for whoever leads the prayer to thank God for our rulers, our president, and uh, may they never pass any laws which would hinder us from doing God's will. Isn't that the way we pray? Sure it is, but it seems there's some that forgot that idea. I want to tell you all, speaking for myself, that I am thankful that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I thank God for the president. I thank God for all officials and lawmakers. As long as they don't pass laws that hinder me from worshiping God. But I have to tell you something right here. I pray for our president. I pray for our governors. I pray for policemen and soldiers. But... I do not have to ask the governor. I do not have to ask uh, the, the uh, a mayor. I don't have to ask the city council. I don't have to ask the health department or the police department or the sheriff's department when and where and how I worship God. I don't have to ask them. And the very fact that there were people who were concerned about asking them I know of a preacher to call the governor in the state where he lives and ask the governor when we was going through all that mess with COVID, uh, what did we need to do? What are you thinking about? Does a governor tell us what to do? I know several people called a sheriff's office. Don't ever do that. The sheriff in most places is an elected official. When you call him and ask him what you can do, you put him on the spot. He doesn't want to fool with that. Uh, it is something that you don't want to do. As a result of this, we find that there's a lot more problems that arise than go away. I don't have to ask these people. And I don't mind to tell you, I got so tired of hearing the, this idea. The government said, the government said, I don't care what the government said. I care what God said. And that's all that makes any difference. It is something, again, that we find out that uh, I never dreamed would happen. You know, we had people stay at home from the assembly of the church. They weren't sick. They were afraid they might get sick. Now, if you stayed home from the assembly of the church, you know what you did? Willfully and premeditated sin. You're commanded to assemble. You chose not to assemble because you might get sick. That's a sin. And there were plenty of people doing that. There's still some doing that. You know, you get out of the habit of going to services at the Lord's house if you're not very careful. And there were people who did just exactly that. Uh, I find out that there were individuals, and I never dreamed this in over 50 years of preaching, I never dreamed I'd see elders and preachers and brethren who chose to violate God's Word. Never dreamed I'd see anything like that. We had churches divided up into little splinter groups. The government said we couldn't have but 10 people together at one time. So here's what we'll do. We got 50 members. We'll divide them up 10 each. And we'll have um, five churches around town. They did that. You know what you do when you divide the Lord's church into little splinter groups? That's not churches out there. 
Uh, that's people who are, are where they should not be. These little splinter groups, if you've got five of them in town, here's what you have. You've got five cups. You've got five loaves. You've got five assemblies. You've got five preachers preaching all at the same time. You've got five treasuries. That's the one that gives them trouble. I ask one of the brothers, what would you do with your treasury? Well, we took it back to the church. I said, that's right. You weren't the church out there. You know things like this never go away. Uh, we dealt with this many years ago. Uh, there were people who thought they could go off on vacation to Yellowstone Park or someplace on a big hunting trip. And when the Lord's Day rolled around, they just pulled off the side of the road and have communion and call it the church. It's not the church. It is a group of Christians who are where they shouldn't be. Where's the church in Yellowstone next Sunday? Well, the members have gone home. That's what happened. We called that the traveling church. And I thought we had whipped that out, but apparently we didn't because it is there again. Uh, we find out the Bible says, and this is in contrast to what the government said, we're supposed to do what God said. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love him, you keep his commandments. You do what God said. Verse, uh, in in uh, the scriptures we read over there in John a while ago, <clears throat> verse 17, he says, Even so faith that hath not works is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. What happens? We show our faith by our works. Uh, if we don't have any works, we don't have any faith. Brother asked me, a preaching friend of mine, he said, are you disgusted? That's a wrong word. I'm not, I'm not disgusted. You know what I am? I'm disappointed. I'm so disappointed. I thought better of us than to do some of the things that we wind up doing. Uh, that's the way that I feel. Preachers, elders, leaders, brethren I love and worked with for over 50 years, just blow away. No faith at all. This brother went on to say, I, I said, I'm disappointed. He said, they've always been like that. This is just the first chance they've had to show they have no faith. I don't know if that's right or not, but it's sure possible that it could be. Abraham was tried. Maybe this was a test for us. You ever think about that? Uh, it's going to happen again. The, uh, a policeman in one of our congregations asked the brethren, um, y'all still use one cup? And he said, yes, we do. Said the preacher just shook his head and walked off. Now what are we going to do when the government says using one cup in a communion is unsanitary? Uh, it could make you sick. You could die. You've got to quit doing it. What are you going to do? There's no more room under the bed. You're going to have to do something else. What are you going to do? Well, I hope you make up your mind that you're not be concerned what the government says. You need to be concerned what God says. Uh, there's no such thing. The, the communion cup is not unsanitary. Besides that, uh, you're not going to suffer doing God's will. You will suffer if you don't do His will. It is up to us to recognize we have to stand up and be cattle on this. Here's another bottom line. For the church, this issue we're talking about is not a health issue. No, it is a faith issue. 
and I've taken some, some flack over this. Uh, somebody asked me, and more than one somebody, several, uh, don't you know there's a plague going on? Don't you know that we've got people dying? Yeah, I do. I do know there's a plague. I know that there's been an epidemic. I do know that hundreds of people have died. But I want to tell you all something. For the Christian, you probably won't get it. If you do get it, you probably won't die. If you do die, you go to paradise. This is a no-lose situation. And we've forgotten about all that. If we die, we go to our calling. We go to our goal. We go to where our sights are set. We go to paradise. Let me ask you this. Wouldn't you give up a life that you cannot keep for a life that you cannot lose? That's what we're supposed to be thinking about. And everybody, it seems like, have been blown away with this. There have been some incidental or collateral damage that I want you to know about because anytime you throw the gates down and you decide you can call off services and everybody can just stay at home, there's going to be other consequences. Uh, there's another consequence that's been going on that has to do with the communion. I'll just refresh your memory. Uh, God said, Matthew 26, 27, Jesus took the cup. In Mark 14, verse 23, he blessed it. In Luke 22, 17, he gave it to them. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter um, 10 at verse 16, we find that this continues the idea. It says, they all drank of it. Now there it is. Jesus took the cup. Do you see any place in all of that for the idea of, um, of uh, individual containers or individual cups like so many use in the Lord's church or in the church of Christ? Uh, I find there's no example whatsoever for that. No individuals at all. But you know what? This is something which I need to give you a little history lesson right here. Back in 1915, uh, the digressive church tried to introduce individual cups into the Lord's church. We fought them tooth and toenail. We whipped them out. They didn't have any luck with it. And then in 1918, the Spanish flu struck the world, just like we've had COVID here the last three years. Uh, all of a sudden... Individual cups began to look pretty good. They started looking pretty good. And as a result of that, they've grown with people who are now concerned about the unsanitary measure of the Lord's Supper. It was never an issue for most people before. Um, here's one that I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, there are brethren who made an effort to wipe the, the rim of the cup Wipe the rim of the cup. Some are still doing that. The man waiting on the table stands up here with his government-approved rubber mask on and his government-approved rubber gloves on, and he offers thanks for the loaf and the cup. Uh, the, then he passes them. We've got two brethren who are waiting on the, passing the loaves. They stand on the same side. They've got their government-approved gloves on and mask on, and they take the cup and they start it down this aisle here. It goes down the aisle, and whoever wants to partake of the cup, and they pass it back, goes back. When it gets back over there, one of the brethren, with great pomp and ceremony, he holds the cup, and the other one takes out his little rag and wipes off the rim. Why, why do they do that? They're scared of it. 
Going to stand our next time back. Wipe the rim all the way around the house. At the end of two benches, they wipe off the rim. What do you all think would happen? Let's suppose when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus took the cup, he blessed it, he handed it to Peter. And Peter partook of it. Peter handed it over to John. John reached in the upper pocket of his robe and whipped out his hanky and wiped off the rib. And then John partook and handed it over to James. James got out of his hanky and he wiped the rim. Is that foolishness? It sure is. And you know nothing like that ever happened. That didn't happen because that's not the way it was set up. But now then, we're afraid that uh, we're going to catch something out of the cup. We're going to get tuberculosis or AIDS or hepatitis or trench mouth or cold sores or who knows what else. We're afraid of it. Now, I have to tell you something right here because I want to shame as many people as I possibly can. Uh, oh, this is something, again, that um, we find that people are doing. Uh, for instance, there are places where they got old folks in the, in the assembly. So when the communion comes around, they take the cup around him. He's old and decrepit, and, and then she's old and decrepit, and let them partake first. Because if they got the COVID from it, they might die. A few years ago down in Texas, there's a lady who had AIDS. She got AIDS from a bad transfusion. Uh, they asked her if she'd wait and partake of the communion last. Because uh, she had AIDS. Now I'm going to tell you something about that. It doesn't matter whether you take the cup first, last, or anywhere in the middle. You're not going to be hurt. What is that? We're afraid of it. What do you think God thinks about something like that? You know, it's been suggested, and I can't make this stuff up. Somebody suggested we get straws. Everybody has their straw. I guess you can have an individual straw. I don't know. And here comes a cup. You stick your straw in there and get your drink. It was, now, again, bear with me. It was also suggested that we get some sports cups. You know what a sports cup is? If you've ever watched football players, you know they want to get something to drink. They come out with this bottle and the football player opens his mouth and they give him a squirt. Uh, if we had some sports cup for the communion, uh, we could get the guy or two or three of the cups and they'd come down. When they hold it out in front of you, you drop your mouth open like a little bird and they'll hit you with a squirt. It's awful, isn't it? And that was actually, somebody suggested that idea. Somebody came up with that. You know, we're big on memorials. I drive down memorial highways. I cross memorial bridges. I've seen the Lincoln Memorial. I've seen memorials everywhere. We love memorials. We even have a memorial day. Do y'all know that you and I as Christians have the greatest memorial in all of the world? It's right here this morning. We have a loaf, which is a memorial to the body of Jesus Christ. It makes us think of Jesus Christ. We have a cup containing grape juice. That is to us the New Testament that Jesus ratified with his blood. Jesus, the Son of God. And we're afraid of it. You afraid of that this morning? 
Shame on you. But that's the attitude a lot of people have. Don't you think the bread's not gotten by? Uh, there is a place, and I heard they were still doing this. I had an eyewitness. They got the bread in a plastic bag. And the bread comes to you and you break you off a piece. They don't want you breathing on the bread. Might make you sick. You see why I'm disgusted with that stuff? I wonder what is wrong with us. What is wrong with us that we've got that far? Now I saved the latest and greatest to the last. You see this? You know what this is? This is a celebration cup. It is individual communion wafer and juice set. It is a versatile new resource for celebrating communion. Now, you won't, we don't need that anymore. We can get rid of all that. Here it is right here. Uh, this is a universal resource for celebrating communion. You know what the word communion means? It means joint participation. Now, you cannot have individual communion, but you, uh, I guess, this is the going thing. You see this? See that little cup? That's like you get cream in out the restaurant. That's got grape juice in it. See this top up here? There's a wafer stuck on there. A wafer about the size of Chex Mix, and it's right there, stuck under that tape. What you do, you want to commune, you rip off the top, eat the little wafer, and drink the little cup. They call it rip and sip. If anybody ever asks you, you can say that's what they do. I read an article in a digressive magazine the other day, and the preacher was talking about rip and sip, and he said, you know, we'll probably never use individual cups again. We could take that rip and sip, and we just take a bucket full of them up to the Lord's table and pour them out, and everybody goes by and gets them on. Communion. Now, I've said this two or three times. Would you let the gate down? The sky's the limit. And there's a start toward the limit. And this is very common nowadays in the digressive Church of Christ. That's what happens when people have no faith in what God said. That sort of thing happens. Uh, you know, we wrote a book a few years ago. This is us again. Uh, the, the little booklet, well, we call that uh, the sanitation of the Lord's Supper. Uh, they asked me to, to contribute to that book when they were writing it. I said, are you going to use that argument that silver is germicidal and if you got a silver cup, you're in the clear? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that's what we want. I said, no, I don't want anything to do with it. It's wrong. That's not right. The teaching was, and it was in that little booklet, if you had a silver, sterling silver cup, it uh, killed all the germs. Now, friends, again, that's foolishness. First of all, that's not true. There is slight germicidal effect, maybe, but certainly not enough to kill all the germs that the cup might have in it. What are we trying to do? We're showing again we're scared. We're scared. We want a silver cup. Now, I ask the question, what about the people that have a pewter cup? Or they have a glass cup? Or they have a crock cup? They're up the up the creek. That stuff doesn't kill any germs. 
Now, they've corrected that booklet, and I think they've thrown that false hood out. I certainly hope so. I'm looking at my last issue here, and as I said, the use of one cup is not a health issue, it's a faith issue. Uh, I am not teaching this lesson for drama, not at all. I've been teaching this, and I've taught it everywhere I've been for a long time. Uh, if you would have told me 20 years ago that the government of the United States of America would forbid the church to assemble, I would not have believed it. If you would have told me that 20, 20 years ago that my brethren uh, would call off Lord's Day morning services, I would not have believed it. If you would have told me that these things that we've witnessed were going to happen, I would not have thought it was possible. But it is, and it has happened. So I'm not hollering wolf. I'm not doing this for drama. I'm telling y'all, it'll happen again. And one of the excuses that brethren made to me was, it caught us off guard. That's no excuse for the Lord's church. The Lord's church should never be caught off guard. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Matthew 7 verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. There's no excuse to be caught off guard. Caught off guard, that's pitiful. Furthermore, I find that this is something again, and I'm going to ask this question. I, I hope that somebody's embarrassed. I hope they are. I hope that someone is ashamed for what they've done and where they are. I truly hope they are. I hope that they've learned the lesson. Let me ask y'all, where you attend services, we'll use this one right here at Columbia. You got any Abrahams here? You got any Elijah's? You got any David's? How about Daniel? You got some Daniel's here? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Got any of those? How about Paul or Peter? Got some? You better have because you're going to need them. You're going to need them. We do not need scared brethren leading the church. We don't need that. That's a sure bad end. Brethren who are scared of the virus. Brethren who are scared of the government. Brethren, uh, brethren who are scared of one cup. We don't need them to lead the church. We need some like I told you and named. I have one last verse. Revelation 21. I'm going to read verse 8. Listen to the first phrase. But the fearful, that's it, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first one is the fearful. Those who are scared are scared. You know, people who are scared are easy to control. And we don't have to be scared. I'm ready to close for this morning. Is there anybody here that's not a Christian? May I encourage you to become one?